Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 65 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is legendary author Ursula K. Le Guin who is the first writer to ever have two books win both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Her novels include The Left Hand of Darkness, about an alien world on which gender is both temporary and fluid, A Wizard of Earthsea, about a brash young wizard who unwittingly unleashes a great evil, and The Lathe of Heaven, about a scientist who attempts to remake the world using a man whose dreams become reality. Then stick around after the interview as we discuss the life and works of Ray Bradbury with guest geek Rajan Khanna. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ursula K. Le Guin. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, it's been reported that some of the protesters at Occupy Oakland have been carrying shields in the image of books, including your novel, The Dispossessed. Just how do you feel about that? Terrific. I am proud and happy that a book, and, and actually a book printed quite a long time ago now, is still making some waves and being of some use to people thinking about this stuff. Did you write any of, any of those books sort of uh, in, uh, intending to inspire action, or was it just purely artistic? I do try to separate my personal activism showing up at a demonstration or something. From what I write, I don't write tracts. I write novels. I'm not a preacher. I'm a fiction writer, you know. I get a lot of moral guidance from reading novels. So I guess I expect my novels to offer some moral guidance, but it, they're not blueprints for action, ever. So in 2008, you wrote an article in Harper's called Staying Awake, Notes on the Alleged Decline of Reading, in which you lamented corporate control of publishing. Have things changed at all, for better or worse, since you wrote that article? Oh, I think they've gone downhill. I mean, I think corporate control has just increased, and as publishing goes into sort of terminal panic about how to handle e-publishing, maybe this is the dark part of the tunnel, and, and we're, we're going to figure out how to, how to do it and how to, like, uh, pay writers some kind of decent return for their writing. But at, at the moment, I don't teach anymore. I don't teach uh, writing classes anymore. And I'm really glad I don't because I would feel very strange about telling people, oh, go, go out there and, and be a writer uh, and make a living from it. I mean, ha. Huh. The writers and the editors are very, very low on the totem pole in the world of corporate publishing. And I don't think it's very good for books. And I know it isn't very good for what writers have to how they buy their peanut butter. So a few years ago, you resigned from the Authors Guild over their settlement with Google. Um, could you talk a bit about that? That was over the, the Google settlement, which appeared to be, in many ways, uh, um, wrong-headed and unjust settlement with, with Google, who was doing a tremendous and is continuing to do a tremendous rip-off job of printing copyrighted material without asking or obtaining permission. And the Authors Guild seemed to be sort of settling and saying, oh, well, all right, you know, you're so big and we're so little, I don't know. 
so I, I was indignant and I withdrew and it made a much bigger stink than I expected it to. The Authors Guild had never really noticed me for about 35 years, but they noticed when I dropped out and a lot of other people did. And so I found myself sort of helping along a uh, a sort of anti-Google protest movement by writers and readers, but mo- mostly by professional writers, people who make their living from writing. And I was pretty well out of my depth in many ways because it, it's a terrifically complicated issue. But there were many very smart people and lawyers and stuff helping. And so we did get a protest moving going that we were able to write Judge Chin, who, who was arbitrating the case. And I, I think make some, some points, which persuaded him to to judge as he did. So I found myself an, an activist where I never expected to be one. Uh, so you've expressed disappointment with some of the film and TV, TV adaptations of your work. Um, when it comes to adaptations, uh, do you have any advice that you pass along to other writers? Don't believe what the people in Hollywood say. Mm-hmm. Do, not, do not believe these people. These people do not speak fully. And they tell you that they admire your work so much and they just you're going to have all the input over it. And so, you know, forget it. You don't have artistic control. Nobody but, but Rowling ever got artistic control over their, over a film made out from their stuff. And, you know, she got it because she's so wealthy. You're not going to get it. Therefore, you have to think, do you mind if they make a travesty out of your work? Uh, is the money worth it to you? If it is, go for it. Take the money and run, as whoever it was said. If it's not worth it to you, <laughs> just run away. So in retrospect, would you say it wasn't worth it to you? or like, And you wish you hadn't uh, allowed like maybe like the, like the sci-fi Earthsea adaptation? or? Oh, yeah, I very much wish that, I, that I'd uh, trusted my, my instincts and, and don't, don't trust these guys. They, don't, they have no respect for the work or for you, and they're just going to make a mess out of it, which they did. Turn everybody white, dip them in the bleach, and so on. The, the one movie that I'm really glad I made and that I'm still kind of proud of is the old 1980 film of The Lace of Heaven in which I did play as much part as I wanted to. I I couldn't actually very much at the time. But uh, that's a good movie still. It still holds up. There was a pointless, meaningless remake of it that just died almost instantly. Yeah, one of the weirdest things about movie people is that they always want to remake. Uh, It must be easier or something. But they they keep going, the requests over and over and over, they want, they talk about Earthsea and they talk about the lake of heaven, as if I hadn't written anything else. Maybe they don't read. Maybe they just look at other people's movies and think, oh, I could do that. Um, are there any other recent or uh, upcoming uh, adaptations of your of your work, of your other works? Oh, we've got a lot of requests on hand. Some of them are do look rather promising and serious, but I can't talk about them. I saw maybe, was there a recent theatrical production of The Lay of the Heaven? Yeah, in, in New York. Uh, Edward Einhorn, 
Oh, did it? I think it was a venue in the village, I think. I've seen a little uh, kind of handheld video of it, and it looks really interesting. He did it with just just four actors. And really no set, but using projections, slides, you know, which is a lovely way to do fantasy on, on stage. And there was an opera uh, this spring on my uh, Paradise is Lost, which is a novella. And it was made into a very beautiful opera, which they produced at the University of Illinois, which I hope gets picked up by other opera companies because it's it is really kind of cool. So I think I think I do better on stage maybe than, than on film, on average so far. There's been a large amount of academic criticism devoted to your work. Um, do you ever read any of that? And uh, is there any that you think is particularly noteworthy, uh, either for being good or for or for being bad? Well, I read I read some of it. A lot of it is kind of written for other academics, you know. Yeah, there there are certain writers like Brian Atterbury or Jim Bittner who who I think really kind of understand my work and sometimes can explain it to me. Oh, is that what I was doing? Hmm, never thought of that, you know. Uh, so your book reviews that you write in The Guardian sometimes chide authors for saying that their work isn't science fiction when it clearly is. For example, you wrote this review of Jeanette Winterson's The Stone Gods, and you said, I'm bothered by the curious ingratitude of authors who exploit a common fund of imagery while pretending to have nothing to do with the fellow authors who created it and left it open for all who want to use it. Do you ever get responses to comments like that from the authors or their supporters or fans or anything like that? Well, I, I, not that I know of. To tell you the truth, I've never checked it out. I am old enough that I grew up before there was an internet, and I just am not in the habit of using the internet to what people think of me. But you know, speaking of authors who say that they don't write science fiction, uh, Margaret Atwood has kind of become this lightning rod among some fans. I've been sort of need I've been needling Maggie for years now. To, uh, come on, Maggie. <laughs> you, know, you do. You know you write science fiction. She's she's in a, a difficult position, obviously, with with her publisher. She herself has, has sort of redefined science fiction to be what Margaret Atwood doesn't write, which is okay. And because Margaret Atwood, to some extent, really can do no wrong in my book, you know, that's okay, but but I, I do sort of keep arguing with her because it doesn't really hold water, her definition. Science fiction is, is not about the impossible, uh, the non-existent. Uh, that's fantasy. And, and she, she sort of says that, that she only writes about what, what is possible and so on. Well, a lot of science fiction does exactly that. You know, I think the whole argument is just withering away because people don't care that much anymore. A lot of people, whether you call it sci-fi or science fiction or mainstream or realism or whatever, it's all getting kind of mixed up together. It's all literature. And that's the way it ought to be, I think. So are you optimistic that someday you might get her to concede that just, okay, works and Craig, it was a little bit science fiction. You got me there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't predict anything about Margaret Atwood. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so we had a couple of questions from listeners. Uh, one, one of them says, growing up, my favorite book was The Tombs of Achuan, and it always struck me as being beautifully strange for not having the series protagonist show up until three quarters of the way through. And he'd like you to just talk about why you made that choice. And it seems like maybe publishers would be wary of something like that. Well, uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, it isn't three quarters of the way through. It's, I would say, maybe third of the way into the book, Ged shows up. That book was written before series were invented in fantasy. Tolkien had written what was called a trilogy, although he didn't call it a trilogy. I think trilogies were just beginning, perhaps, to be fashionable, but fantasies weren't, they didn't fall into these categories they do now. Ged was not a series hero. He was a hero of a novel called A Wizard of Earthsea. This was a sequel. That's all there was to it. In other words, fantasy was not controlled by the advertising department and what's going to sell. Fantasy was controlled by the author to a larger extent than, than it is now. And the book has two protagonists, a young woman and a slightly older man. And they, it's sort of their interaction that makes the book happen. But that's not an unfamiliar situation in novels. It's just that I think this listener has, is just used to sort of conventional mass-produced fantasy, where you have a, a series hero and, and, and certain things are done in certain ways and so on. Did, did you ever experience any pressure from publishers to make your work more conventional in any way? Within the last few years only, my uh, three fantasy novels, Gifts, Voices, and Powers, I had, as always, good editors to work with at Harcourt, where they were published, but there was an increasing pressure to make them more like Harry Potter. There's just no getting around it. And since I write a very, very different type of fantasy and different type of literature from the Harry Potter series. This was just, you know, no way could I go on with it. I just had to resist it. But that, that you see, that's very late, and it's it kind of happened as publishing was, was beginning to kind of lose its sense of direction and sense of purpose and getting very confused by corporate pressures on all sides. So I'm a big fan of Philip K. Dick, and when I attended the Clarion Writers Workshop, Tim Powers and Karen Joy Fowler assigned each of us a book to read that they thought would resonate with us, and the book that they assigned to me was The Lathe of Heaven, uh, which they, and I've heard others have described it as being an homage to Philip K. Dick, and I've just always wondered if that's true. And Oh, d- yeah, def- definitely. You know, I, I couldn't write a, a Phil Dick book, but I could feel some of his some of his tricks in a way that kind of pulling reality out from under the reader all the time, you know, changing reality on him the way he does. Well, I, I did it through through uh, George's dreams. Phil would, would have done it another way, but yeah, homage homage to Phil Dick is, is right. Did you know him at all? Did you interact with him? <laughs> we talked on the telephone and we corresponded some, but we never actually met. Except 
we must have met in high school because we were at Berkeley High School at the same time. But nobody I know remembers him. He is the unknown man from my class at Berkeley High. Well, that's sort of funny because in a lot of his stories, uh, one that comes to mind is Flow My Tears, the policeman said. It's about a guy who suddenly nobody knows who he is anymore. I wonder if that was uh, autobiographical in any way. Oh, must be. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm rather proud of the fact that I was kind of defending Phil Dick's work early on when he was not being paid much attention to and never kept in print. And I kept saying, this guy is really good. This guy is writing completely original stuff. It's why, you know, it, it isn't conventional. It isn't run-of-the-mill. It's different, but it's, it's really interesting. And, of course, Phil picked up on that. And, you know, you always like uh, when another writer likes your stuff, you kind of want to know that writer. So we just, I don't know, he may have written me or him. Yeah, we, we talked to him. And I got a little bit bossy and, and told him that that the women in his novels were kind of predictable. And he really, I didn't really think he'd pay any attention. But he did. Apparently he'd been really sort of trying to think about the way he'd been handling women in his fiction. Which, that touches me. That, uh, you know, he didn't have to pay any mind to anything I said. Do you, do you remember what year that was, that people would look for that sort of change in his fiction? I think the novel where he, he tried to sort of write women different, I think it was Vallis, V-A-L-I-S. Uh, so it's kind of late. We're getting into the, the novels after he had that sort of revelation thing he had and began writing a rather different kind of book. So years ago, I read your two books on writing, Steering the Craft and The Language of the Night. And one thing that really struck me from those were your comments about how wrongheaded many of our so-called rules of grammar are. I was just wondering, could you, are there any particular grammar rules that you would just want to see just go away? I was probably talking about the fact that the grammarians kept telling us that we can't use they as a singular, like if anybody needs an abortion, he should have to tell his mother and father, uh, which only is he, as the, uh, the he is the generic pronoun. Well, I mean, this is nonsense in English. And English has always used they. It's in Shakespeare. You know, anybody needs an abortion, they should not have to tell their parents. And it just, it's one of these arbitrary bans that, that, that every now and then grammarians get away with. And uh, that, that, that kind of thing, where, where, where there's a moral influence from it, you, you have to talk about that. But the easy thing to do with grammar is just accept the rules and use them as you see fit. But you have to know them before you can break them. That's the only rule I accept. Uh, so there's a recent book called 80 uh, Memories and Reflections on Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, how did that come about? Oh, it's what they call a fest trip. They get people together to, to sort of celebrate somebody who's having a birthday or something. And I've had my 80th birthday. And so it's just a lot of very nice people sort of put a little book together with, well, there's some stories about me and just stories and, and stuff. It was a nice present for a birthday. 
So there's also a documentary in the works uh, called uh, Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about that? Uh, it's Arlen Curry is making it, and she and I have been working together on and off for a couple of years now. Well, you know, I can't tell you about the documentary itself because I haven't seen it. I don't really know where it's at. It's just that Arlen and I have been, she's been coming here and filming on and off for the last couple of years. And we talked together, and we've gone places that are important in my life so she could film me there, like the branch in the Napa Valley where I spent all my summers as a kid and still go every summer. Or next month, uh, she's going to meet me out in southeast Oregon at a farmhouse where we spend a week every year uh, under Steens Mountain, which is the country that I've come to love very much. And so, you know, she's going to put all this together, and I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I trust Arlen Curry to do it well. Uh, so we mentioned that the, for the second half of our show today, we'll be talking about Ray Bradbury. Uh, do you have any memories uh, relating to Bradbury that you'd like to share? I only met Ray two or three times, always down in L.A., because he was not a traveler, as you know. And he was always very genial and <laughs> a little bit overbearing. <laughs> a great big football player of a guy. He was he was very nice. You 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 had this the sense of this warmth of the personality that that come through in in his books too. You know, I don't know anybody that has anything against Ray Bradbury. Maybe there are people, but he seems not to have made enemies, which is a that's pretty good going for a writer that successful and li- living in in Los Angeles. Uh, is there anything maybe about any of his books that uh, that you remember or that are favorites of yours or anything like that? Oh, the the uh, the Martian Chronicles. I oh, you know, I read that fairly. It came out a long time ago. I, I was in my twenties at most, I guess, and I just loved it. He was making science fiction romantic. Science fiction often gets kind of hard edged and dry and a little over intellectual, you know. And I just, I thought, oh, wow, look what, look what he's doing. He's making it beautiful and romantic with what, this kind of warmth of human feeling in it. And uh, that was important then. Okay. And so finally, just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Two things this fall is that all six books of Earthsea will finally be published in the uniform edition in the United States which is a real joy to me. Fulton Mifflin Harcourt is putting out the, the, the hardcover, and uh, Simon Schuster is, is, does the uh, paperback. And so that, that'll all be out. I think I don't have a pub date yet, but I guess it's September probably. And also, I have a uh, new and selected poems, which means that it's a kind of retrospective of my selected from my six poetry books and a whole set of new poems. And that's coming out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for this fall, too. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very pleased about that. It's called Finding My Elegy. I got a story coming out in Tin House, I guess maybe next issue. It's called Elementals. Kind of a fantasy. 
all along the Borghese line, I guess, a little. Okay, great. So Ursula K. Le Guin, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you very much. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ursula K. Le Guin for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing the life and works of Ray Bradbury, who died on June 5th at the age of 91. And we have a special guest geek joining us for that, Rajan Khanna. His fiction has appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies and The Way of the Wizard, as well as on the Podcastle podcast. His article, Ray Bradbury, Mr. Electro and Me, recently appeared on LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, and so I think we're just going to start out and talk a little bit about how we first encountered Ray Bradbury's work. And maybe, Raj, since you're new, you can go first and just tell us, uh, how did you first encounter Ray Bradbury? When I was a kid, I was really into audiobooks. It was something that my grandmother had started with me. And uh, I remember f- seeing audiobooks for the first time in Walden Books or something like that. And right next to the checkout counter, there was the Illustrated Man and Other Stories, uh, read actually by Ray Bradbury. And it looked cool because it had a picture of a tattooed man on the cover. So I asked my my mother to buy it for me, and she did. And I remember going home and listening to it. And so that was really my first encounter with Ray Bradbury, uh, which was through an audiobook. And it wasn't the exact lineup of the Illustrated Man collection. It was it was a it was a bunch of different stories. And I was kind of young for it, I think, because you know, a lot of them were, were a little spooky uh, for me at the time, but I knew I was interested in stories. But the moment that I had where I realized what good writing was and like what language could do was listening to The Illustrated Man on that audio tape, because I, I remember the specific passage. It was, and it was later, it was maybe a few years after I had, for, you know, first got it and listened to it. It was, I guess I was a little older. And I remember there's a sequence where he describes Illustrated Man, who's this really fat guy, right? William Philippus Phelps. And he talks about his brontosaur bones and the vast oceans of of, uh, pop or orange juice that he's been drinking. And I just remember having this epiphany of, of like, wow, you know, like that's amazing that you can take these ideas and kind of merge them together. And so that was like my first awakening as a writer that, that that language could do more than just tell you exactly what was happening. It could, you know, verge into symbol and metaphor. And, and so that always stuck with me through the years. Uh, yeah, for me, I think it was just uh, Fahrenheit 451 was my introduction to Bradbury. I, I had to read it in school, uh, probably freshman year of high school. And as, um, as I was sort of want to do when I was assigned books in school, I, I just couldn't read them. I couldn't, I, I only, uh, <laughs> you know, I just refused to read anything that I was assigned and, and I would just, you know, answer the study questions as best I could by skimming uh, through the book. And, and, and that's how I, you know, passed my test and whatnot. And so, you know, Fahrenheit 451 was one of many books that I sort of resented uh, when I was a teenager because I was assigned it. And uh, it wasn't until later, um, you know, a couple of years later, probably when I was 18 or so, um, I was I was working at a Walden Books um, and, uh, uh, you know, the summer reading lists were coming out and, uh, and a bunch of kids had, uh, you know, Fahrenheit 451 on there. and uh, and, you know, so we were selling a lot of copies and, and I was just like, you know, this sounds like such an awesome book. I don't know why I didn't get into it. And, and so, you know, so I picked it up and, and, and I read it and, uh, and, you know, just fell in love with it. And I mean, it's just so, such an amazing book. I mean, it became one of my favorite books and has remained so to this day. 
and uh, you know was even you know a, a, a primary inspiration for me doing my anthology Brave New Worlds, which is a dystopian anthology. And uh, I mean, you know, as much as it, I mean, it's named after you know Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, but uh, I mean, to me, Fahrenheit 451 um, is is sort of a greater influence on me as far as dystopian fiction goes. And uh, and it's funny because I, I really remember vividly the 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 day that i was reading the book and i mean i and i sat and i read it all at once you know like from cover to cover just you know like basically one reading session but it was funny because i was living in florida and our air conditioner had broken so it was like really really hot in the house and and you know i was sitting at home i was waiting for the air conditioner repairman to come um and so i just i thought it was kind of funny that i was i spent my day uh reading a book uh that's named after temperature when, you know, the temperature in my house was like, you know, probably 115 degrees or some shit like that. Yeah, I mean, in my case, you know, my parents read me The Illustrated Man when I was a real little kid. And I can, boy, just the idea of the of the main character who he says, you know, this, he decided he was, uh, he'd been injured in some sort of accidents, I think. And he said he uh, decided to get tattooed and this witch from the future tattooed him. And boy, that just creeped me out so much. And you know, these different tattoos come to life. And uh, in particular, one of the stories in the book is, I think it's called The Man. Uh, the way I remember it anyway is that the implication is that Jesus was a guy who sort of travels from planet to planet. And so he's arrived on this alien planet and kind of spread this message of peace and love and, and stuff. And uh, one of the people on the planet says, oh, he, his eyes were the color of the sky, the color of the sea, something like that. And I can just like still 30 years later, I can still hear my mom's voice saying, those words, that passage struck me so much. And it's kind of like, like Raj was saying, and actually uh, when we interviewed Carrie Vaughn um, back in episode nine, I remember she said that her, her epiphany about what, what language could do was reading a Ray Bradbury story and that there was something about the smell of sneakers and, as, and that she could smell, you know, actually as she was reading the story, she could smell sneakers in her nose and was like, wow, that's really amazing. How can words just evoke that kind of uh, sensation? But it's interesting, John, what you were saying about how you had this resistance to reading Ray Bradbury because he was assigned in school. And I think I had something of the same thing. I mean, I have read a fair bit of Bradbury, but I think I did have a resistance to reading him because he was sort of on this approved reading list. Actually, I think speaking of our guest, Ursula K. Le Guin, I think I probably would have read more of her work if, uh, you know, A Wizard of Earthsea hadn't been on the reading lists in school. But I did have, you know, because uh, so many of my teachers were so hostile to fantasy and science fiction, you know, they're like, oh, all that stuff is crap, except for these guys, they're good. You know, there's like, you can't imagine a way to make a kid like me more hostile to those authors <laughs> to do that, you know. I have a shameful confession to make, and, and that's that I missed that period, I guess, that, of reading Fahrenheit 451 in school, or maybe my school just decided to be different. I read The Illustrated Man, I think, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, but I never read Fahrenheit 451 in school, and I never read it until after he died. Um, mm. I, I've loved his short fiction for many years, but I, it was always the short stories for me because, you know, there are very few people who can write, for me at least, perfect short stories, and he was one of them. So I always reveled in, in the stories themselves. You know, he died and I was like, God, I, I never read Fahrenheit 451. I have to read it. And I read it and I, I read it in two days, but I was blown away. You know, like it, it is such a, it's classic for a reason, obviously, but I just, it's weird to me that it took me this long to get to it. I saw actually that what he has on his tombstone, it says Ray Bradbury, author of Fahrenheit 451. That's his hmm. epitaph. Oh, wow. 
But even that is a, it's a pretty short novel, isn't it? It's yeah, about 50,000 yeah, words or so. Yeah. And it's actually, it's an expansion of a short story, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. It was originally published as a, as a novella called The Fireman, um, which is, uh, hard to find at this, at this point, although Subterranean Press recently, uh, released a collection that includes it. It's called, uh, Pleasure to Burn, which is, you know, reference to the first line of the, of the novel. It's, so it's the original novella plus some other stories that sort of, influenced or else uh sort of tie into fahrenheit 451 like sort of in bradbury's mind i guess you know sort of stuff that stories that he sort of explored some of the concepts that he later expanded on in fahrenheit 451 to some degree or another so like you know the pedestrians in there which i also reprinted in brave new worlds but uh, i mean the primary uh uh feature of that book is is the fireman which has been sort of unavailable for many years well, it seems like often when an author takes a short story and expands it into a novel, everyone says, oh, the short story was better. You know, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it really only needed to be a short story and they only expanded it into something longer for commercial reasons. You right. Know? Was that the case with 451, do you think, or does it? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that it, it, it legit works, you know, beautifully as a novel. And uh, uh, but I mean, it's it's hard to say because uh, I did encounter it first that way. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I've certainly encountered that. I've certainly encountered that myself. Like, I mean, my favorite story is Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, and, and that was expanded into a novel. And uh, it's fine. It's just, you know, it doesn't need to be a novel because everything, you know, all the good stuff is in the story. Was Fahrenheit 451 published in Playboy originally? I seem to remember reading that. Uh, Well, The Fireman was. Oh, um, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think Fahrenheit 451 was serialized or anything, but The Fireman, the, the original novella, was published in Playboy. And it was it too controversial at the time to be published anywhere else? Uh, I don't know about that. That's a good question. Um, it, it, there's a good chance that it was published in Playboy strictly because, you know, well, they paid a, a, a ton of money for this for these things, and it was a very prestigious place to publish something. On the other hand, they did also publish controversial stuff. So, I mean, it's a good question. Mm. Um, okay, so Raj, I mean, you know, John and I, as we've mentioned, both read this book as teenagers. Do you think that your experience reading it as an adult after so many years is different? Um, I think what surprised me the most was that while, you know, the technology might not be as relevant to what we have right now, uh, most of the themes were extremely relevant to, to our society today. I think a lot of the, the book itself is about a, a culture that's, it, it's not just about the book burning, it's a culture of apathy that is developed in this future. And, you know, it was almost chilling noticing certain familiar bits that were coming out in this novel that was written so long ago. I don't fear right now that we're going to lose books necessarily maybe in the way that Bradbury did when he was when he was writing this but there's something in there about the simplification of the world you know everything gets boiled down into something that's easily digestible and i think we see elements of that you know whether it's the the 2 minute soundbite that that we have on the news or you know the way that movies often these days seem to be very simplified i i guess i because they teach it to kids i i was it or teenagers, I suppose, I was expecting just a more straightforward narrative. But, you know, his language is still there. And, you know, the, the images that he uses and his metaphors, which, which are just amazing. Well, you know, John mentioned the short story of the pedestrian, which I guess was also sort of a thematic or a, a spiritual 
precursor to Fahrenheit 451. And the way I remember that story anyway is there's a guy and he's just out walking at night and gets picked up by the police. And walking around at night has just become a crime. And no one's even sort of really aware of that because they're just all hypnotized by their television sets. I just read that one within the past couple of years. And that really made, that really struck home to me because I do walk around a lot at night and you all, you do sort of get hassled a lot. Um, and I think, I feel like that's something Bradbury captures in that and in Fahrenheit 451 really well, this idea of that there's this persecution of people who are different, even if they're different in a completely innocuous way. Yeah, I mean, definitely with, um, what, what's her name, uh, Clarice in the beginning, that uh, guy meets Clarice, who's, you know, she likes to take walks and think about the world and look at things and everyone, you know, throughout the rest of the book basically puts her down. And even after she dies, like, who cares about her? She was a weirdo. Uh, I was talking about this uh, at dinner with my family and, uh, and you know, my, uh, I have a stepdaughter who's 18 and, and you know, so, uh, so she was just recently, she just recently finished high school and, you know, she didn't have to read Fahrenheit 451 in high school and I was sort of appalled, you know, although on the one hand I was appalled that they're not teaching it in, in her class. On the other hand, it's like, well, you know, it didn't work for me. I don't know how much it works for, for other teenagers. It's like, maybe it's better to come to them on your own. But, um, she said instead of Fahrenheit 451, they actually read, um, she said they read some short story instead, and she started describing it. She's like, well, it's about this guy who's sort of walking around the neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, The Pedestrian by Ray Bradbury? And she's like, oh, yeah. And so it was just, it was just kind of funny. It's like, you know, it's like from, <laughs> you know, when, when they picked a dystopian story and she describes like, you know, like uh, the first little tiny bit of the story. It's like, oh, well, yeah, that's obviously that, right? Um, I mean, I was, I was glad that they were te still teaching Ray Bradbury, even if they weren't teaching um, Fahrenheit 451. And um, actually, I mean, it kind of made me think that really short stories, maybe, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but I mean, it's like, I, I, I kind of feel like short stories is probably a better thing to try to teach kids in, in, in high school, like in stuff. It's just because it's like, you know, to sustain their interest of, in a novel over, you know, over the course of reading a whole novel, it just seems like it's asking a bit too much, um, especially when you have so much to cover in a curriculum. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, certainly like, and, and I mean, you know, my, and, you know, Brave New Worlds uh, has actually been used in, in several classrooms and, and there was some, uh, I had some interest in, um, from teachers of, of high school students asking, you know, who had asked me, who had emailed me to ask, you know, is there anything in there that like a high school, would it be inappropriate for a high school student, you know, because they wanted to use it in the classroom. And, and I mean, I think that kind of thing is cool because I think dystopian fiction in particular is, is something that's really relevant to young people, uh, you know, uh, at that age. The one thing, uh, when I read, for Fahrenheit 451, one thing I really remember is that there was this afterword by Ray Bradbury. And one thing he mentioned is that the main characters, um, Montag and Faber, if I'm remembering right, are both named after, it was like, like a pencil company and a paper company or something like that. And he said he didn't even realize that when he wrote it. It was purely subconscious. Oh, that's funny. But also, he, he also included a, an extra chapter in this edition. I don't know if that's in every edition, but it was as an appendix. And it's a chapter in which the main character is shown into his boss's secret library and the guy explains that you know that he his job is to burn books but that his passion is actually to collect books and he has the secret library of books and Bradbury said that he just loved this chapter so much but it just he couldn't find a way to fit it into the plot anywhere and uh but he he liked it too much to just completely discard it so he had included it as an appendix but I've always found that chapter one of the most memorable parts of the book because it does express this truth that moralizing crusaders often are the ones who are the most 
enraptured of the thing that they claim to despise. Yeah, mine didn't, my copy didn't have that extra chapter, but I mean, I think that fits in with, with my understanding, at least, or my, my thoughts about the chief. And I forget his name right now, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he was the one who was able to quote like every book ever in, mm-hmm. in, in Fahrenheit 451. So I feel lucky that I got to read the illustrated man in school because, you know, it was like, I, I got excited because I was already in science fiction at the time. And I was like, we get to read this for, for class. And then because we got to read several different stories, it, it was almost like this treasure chest of, of cool ideas. Uh, I, I remember a few from that very specifically, like the man, like Dave mentioned. And there's a story, and I can't remember, I almost want to say it's like the return where these white astronauts land on a planet that's pretty much all black um, because they left they were forced to leave earth and they they colonized their own place and uh, the white astronauts you know earth i think was destroyed by that time and they had to land and it was you know this moment of do we treat them the way that they treated us or do we treat them differently and i thought that was really for me that was like one of the key stories we read in school because you know it it does tackle race relations which don't always see a lot in in stories like that but then the and then the other story from that collection that i remember very clearly is one where it's just this this guy who's in a spacesuit falling through space and he knows that he's going to burn up in the atmosphere and, you know, I think even a, a comet or something shoots by and like takes off his arm and his suit seals around it. And so he, it's just this like fatalistic story about this guy and what he, what he thinks about when he's basically floating through space. And it's amazing. And yet in the end, what I find amazing, cause I think, I think of Bradbury, Bradbury as this, uh, amazing optimist. And in the end, you know, this guy burns up on the way through the atmosphere. The little kid looks up and, and sees it and, you know, wishes on the shooting star. And I think it becomes an inspiration for him. So, and, and just the end of Fahrenheit 451, there's that hopeful note of these guys, you know, wandering about storing this information in their heads and kind of holding it for a time when they, they can write it down again. So. Another uh, another story from that book I, I really remember is uh, this one where these there are these guys on Venus. This is you know pulp era kind of Venus, and on, on, in this story on Venus, it never stops raining, like literally never stops raining, and so you have to get to these sort of heated domes, I guess I would say. And if you sp- spend too long out in the rain, you just go crazy, and people will just sort of fall to their knees and stare up at the sky and open their mouths and and drown themselves just because they've just gone insane because of the nonstop rain. So, Dave, uh, I, have a, I have a correction. Uh, you're actually right that Fahrenheit 451 was serialized in Playboy. Um, I was wrong. The, the fireman appeared in uh, Galaxy. Uh, any other stories from Illustrated Man that particularly stick in you guys' minds? I get confused as to which stories appeared where because I feel like I have so many different collections by him that, that things jump jump uh places because i think the copy of the illustrated man that i read didn't actually have the illustrated man in it it was just hmm. a, a framing sequence wait is there a i thought it just was a framing sequence you know th- there is a story called the illustrated man as well oh huh, okay 
Yeah, and and that was the one that I remember listening to when I was a kid. And and that's the other thing too. Those stories I listened to on that audio tape, all of which are pretty much burned into my brain, are from various places. So some of them were even from Martian Chronicles, which I didn't find out until much later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories in the Illustrated Man are are also in the Martian Chronicles. They're you know they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean from the Illustrated Man. I mean, there's certainly the Velt uh, is, is something. Uh, you know, worthy of discussing. I know, I know that's one of your favorites, Dave. Yeah, or at least it's one that made a big impression on me because I encountered it so young. I actually saw a really good adaptation of that. It was like a Twilight Zone episode or something. Just the way he, you know, it's the stories about these kids who have a sort of VR, you know, virtual reality playroom, uh, and they're just obsessed with recreating the African Velt, and that becomes more and more real, and their parents become more and more concerned. Yeah, just the way he described just the. The creepy, just so creepy, the animals and the, uh, you know, flies buzzing and the heat and stuff like that. Yeah, that one creeped me out when I was a kid, too, especially because they're they're these kids who become obsessed with this. And in the end, you know, their parents basically get killed, right, by the the lions that are that are in this belt that they create. Um, But they it's never explicit. It's just, you know, like you see, I think the vultures circling over bodies or whatever when the psychologist comes to visit. Well, and I, I think a lot of people think of Bradbury as being a sort of good-natured writer for children, you know, but so many of his stories are so disturbing. I, I actually, I've never read this story, but I've heard that one of, maybe his first story or one of his early stories anyway, is sort of this kind of psychological horror story about a guy who can't stop thinking about the fact that there's a skeleton inside his body. You know, it's like this, hmm. this horror monster basically <laughs> is like living inside his body. And, uh, God, to, just to come up with an idea like that, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, that's really cool. But, uh, like, I mean, one of my favorite stories of his is, is this story called Pillar of Fire. I mean, it, it's actually one of the harder ones to find, although it's in that, it's in that collection I mentioned, A Pleasure to Burn. The, uh, I mean, it's basically, it's, it's about, it's like set in the future and, this guy who was like the last murderer in the world or whatever, he, uh, he wakes up from his grave and he, you know, he, he, he pulls himself out of, out of his grave and he finds himself in this world where crime has been abolished and nobody has any, you know, understanding of what, what a criminal act would be or, or what evil is. Um, and so he like wakes up just hating. Um, and that's like, that's like the first line makes some reference to that. And it's just like, he's just full of hatred and, uh, um, and so he finds himself in this uh, utterly naive world and, and, you know, goes on a killing spree. Dave, to answer your earlier question about other stories from the Illustrated Man, the other one that sticks out in my head is Marionettes Incorporated, which is kind of an interesting story because, you know, it's about artificial humans. And the idea is that this guy wants to buy one of these clockwork creations to replace himself to basically take his place with his wife. The funny thing about that story is like they can actually, if you put your ear close to the marionette, you can actually hear like tick tocking inside. So hmm. even though it's this futuristic story, there's this kind of clockwork element to it. I think people would often say the talk about the ABCs of science fiction, you know, the Asimov, Bradbury and Clark. And Bradbury was always, I think, different in, in that he was. I, I think there's a quote from him where he says something like, um, I don't try to predict the future. I try to prevent it. Yeah, well, I mean that that quote, and uh, and uh, sort of coupled with his his stance in in his later years, uh, you know, vehement stance against the internet. Like he just he hated the internet. He wouldn't allow his his books to be published as ebooks for for many years. Um, finally, 
Fair Enough Orphan One recently came out as an ebook, but prior to that, like none of his work was available um, in electronic format, and and so so there's this real sense of him being an enemy to technology, and you know, being one of our greatest you know living writers of any genre, certainly, but you know, as somebody that we claim as a science fiction fantasy writer, it's a little troubling that people so that like writers like him. And like writers like Michael Crichton, who obviously is in a different sort of category, is not, you know, not the pro stylist Ray Bradbury is, but still very popular, but also someone who writes stuff that's very anti-science or anti-technology or, you know, in the sense that that that, that those elements, um, you know, the scientific or technological elements are often the, the antagonist in, in, in the stories. It's a little bothersome to me that 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 those writers are very popular uh, versus writers who champion technology and science and stuff are, are not nearly so. Actually, speaking of the Fahrenheit 451 ebook, I saw that when he finally relented and let it be released, it was conditional on the fact that anyone in any library could download it for free. That's awesome! I didn't know that. He he loved libraries. I mean he basically said he couldn't afford to go to school. So he learned everything by just going to the library and that stuck with him, that, that love and, and want, you know, I think that's part of the idea also behind Fahrenheit 451, you know, wanting to protect these kind of places where people can go and read and learn. And, 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 and the other thing is to, I, I agree with you, John, you know, in his idea of or his attitudes towards technology, I try to look at, the other side, which is, you know, his desire to, that for people to basically live life and live life to the fullest, which sounds like a cliche, but, you know, also to go out and see things and touch things and mm-hmm. experience being in the world rather than, I guess, shutting yourself away from it, which, you know, again, is in Fahrenheit 451 with the wife who basically, you know, sits in between the three screens all the time, wanting the, the fourth screen and and only interacts with this kind of fake online world. What I like to interpret his stance on is to kind of have that balance, you know, but not necessarily mm-hmm. to demonize all technology. So yeah, and I mean, he might be right about some things. I mean, sure, uh, sure. I think it's important that we don't let our boosterism of science and technology turn into naive techno optimism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, f- for example, uh, Bradbury was notoriously hostile to automobiles and as a kid i just thought that was the craziest thing i'd ever i'd ever heard but the older i get and especially after having lived in los angeles uh the more <laughs> uh merit i see to that view and you just think like thirty thousand a year thirty thousand people a year in this country die in automobile accidents and is this really the best way to be getting people from one place to another uh you know this this mass carnage you know, it's, it's funny that actually there, I think it was a Larry Niven story where it's, it's set in the future and in, the, in, in, in this future, you know, there's mass transit and the cars are all driven by AIs and stuff like that. And people, like the, the, the daredevil type people will just drive cars like we do, you know, without any AI and they have to go to these special areas and they just, you know, drive their cars using steering wheels and people in the wider society just consider them, uh, suicidal basically. And I think there's actually some merit to that view. I think maybe Bradbury was onto something on that in in that case. Um, my favorite short story of his is "There Will Come Soft Rains," which is this great. Like, I mean, it's like the, probably it's one of the saddest stories I've ever read. I mean, it's it's oh, it's just like there's there's like so much feeling in that story, uh, which is funny because there's no people in it. It's a post-apocalyptic setting where like all the people have died, 
And it's about this smart house, you know, which just keeps continuing to do its duty, uh, even in the absence of people, um, you know, making the toast and doing all its various, uh, you know, morning rituals that it did to prepare for its, its people waking up and all, and all that. Um, and it's, oh, it's just such a beautiful story. Just, I mean, the language and, and the emotion that he packs in. I mean, it's a really short story too. It's like 2000 words, you know. And and I'll never forget this too. Like I saw this uh, stage that stage adaptation of it um, at the New York City uh, Fringe Festival, and oh my god, it was oh it was so beautiful. And and just like I wish, I wish that that had, that was like recorded that I could like just show every show it to everyone like on YouTube or something because it's like, I, I mean I get that like you know that part of the point of a of a play is so that you know you go see the play and that's how you experience it. But it's, it's just like it seems like a shame that like I I can't just make everybody watch this because it was so amazing. I mean, I was in tears by the end of it. So did, were you there for that, Dave? Or I no? was, yeah. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I was, I was thinking, that, thinking of that, actually, when Ursula McGuinn in the interview was saying about how she seems to do so much better with adapta- stage adaptations of her work than film and TV adaptations. Because, uh, boy, that, yeah, that, that stage adaptation of There Will Come Soft Rains was fantastic. And there's a part in the story where uh, a dog comes back to this automated house and sort of comes in through the dog door, but then the house won't let it out again. And it's sort of running around. And I think it's, it starves to death, even though, because the, the house keeps preparing meals and putting them, putting them on the table and clearing them off. And, but the dog can't get to any of those meals and it just sort of eventually lies down and dies. And they had this sort of dog puppet that was running around. And the way it was done is that they actually read the entire text of the short story. So you were sort of seeing it acted out on stage and you're hearing the words and there were different colored lights and stuff. And, and yeah, the, the whole thing was just amazing. Yeah, that is my favorite short story as well of his. And uh, I'm actually sad I didn't see the stage play because I do remember when it was being mentioned, but I guess I never made it out. But it is really haunting. And it was another one of those that I listened to as a kid. And I remember, you know, just feeling this loneliness like infused throughout this story and you know i remember he, there's a part where he describes the silhouettes of people uh burned against i guess the house or the wall or something like that mm-hmm. and you know as a kid i remember thinking like oh sh-, you know i i i understand what this is you know like there this is after a nuclear attack or something it's amazing that he can get that kind of emotion like you said, out of a story with no people where everything's mechanical and it's just this house kind of going through the motions. And yet the house, you know, you almost feel sorry for the house because there's no people for it to take care of. Now, is that story part of the Martian Chronicles? Yes. Which, which is weird to me because again, mm-hmm. that was the one I discovered later on. I'm like, how does this fit into the Martian Chronicles? But well, that's actually uh, that's that's one of my problems with the Martian Chronicles. Like, I, I don't I don't feel like it really holds together all that well as a collection. Like, the individual stories are great, you know, but having them together like as this one thing where it's like all the Martian Chronicles. Like, I don't know. Like, I, like I mean, like fr- like I mean, like you say, like that story doesn't really seem like it fits to me. Like, it doesn't belong there. I I don't know if this is exactly true, but from reading about it. They were basically, you know, saying like, why don't you write a novel? And he was like, I don't mm-hmm. know if I can do that. And they were like, why don't we just shove these together and, and kind of slap a theme on top of it? But I mean, I guess that's the thing. I've always read them as separate stories and not mm-hmm. kind of interrelated. Um, and obviously they take stories out and pop them into other collections here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the that I mean, I'm sure that's what happened with the Illustrated Man, too, is that, you know, he came up with this frame story to have 
you know, to have, have it, uh, have a sort of an excuse to have it not just be a story collection, you know, it's like, oh, well, no, it's, it's got this whole inner, interwoven narrative, you know, and it's like, and some of those are kind of questionable too. It's like, oh, you're really, oh, okay. All right, fine. But you know, it's like, uh, it, it works better in the illustrated man than I think in the Martian Chronicles as, as far as that goes. Um, like, I mean, personally, like I'd rather it just be a collection without that sort of, uh, framing stuff. Although like the illustrated man is really great. But, uh, you know, I don't know what the publishing climate was like at the time. Maybe it's just that, you know, that's not something that you could really get away with. And I mean, even now, certainly, I mean, if you have a novel, that's going to sell a lot better than a short story collection. So um, it is probably a commercial uh, decision. Uh, and in the case of Illustrated Man, it worked out really well. With Case of Mars Chronicles, I, I don't know. I'm not as big a fan, although I'm, I'm certainly in a minority of that. The story I remember from Martian Chronicles most vividly is the one where these uh settlers land on Mars and finds that it's just like their hometown from their childhood and all their their parents and siblings are all there young the way that they used to be you know and they're just so happy to have found this place and they sort of go to bed smiling about how happy they are to be there and then the whole town sort of rises up and murders them in their sleep because they're all just Martians you know in disguise I think it would actually be really interesting to go back and read Martian Chronicles now, having read the John Carter books, because Martian Chronicles was sort of playing off this whole decades-long history of Mars in science fiction that I was completely unaware of when I read it as a teenager. I saw a quote one time where somebody said that one of Ray Bradbury's great accomplishments was putting a hot dog stand on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Who else would have thought to do that? So. <laughs> there Will Come Soft Rains is just such an amazing title. And mm -hmm. I mean, his stories are amazing, but some of them are just like the man, the yeah. ravine, the foghorn. And I, I think that came out of the way that he used to get ideas to, to write. I haven't read too much about this, but basically he said what he would do is sometimes to, you know, come up with an idea for a short story, just write down some nouns. He would start listing nouns. And then after he had some nouns, he would start thinking about those and get some basic ideas or maybe even sensory impressions of these specific nouns and then that would basically snowball into the idea of the story hmm. and he basically i believe he used to write or at least used to teach to write short stories basically all in one sitting not final draft but basically to get your first draft out right away because that's when those ideas are kind of fresh and they'll change or you'll lose that momentum if you if you don't do that which I've tried to do, and it's really hard. I mean, he, I, I think, so, so my theory was always that, you know, when he writes The Ravine, and that's the title, it's because, you know, he thought ravine, interesting word, and like started mm -hmm. thinking about things to do with ravine, and that started a whole story, so. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually, I kind of like titles sometimes where it's just the such and such, because when, when you've read a hundred stories by somebody and you're looking for one particular one, it can be easier to find it if it's called the ravine than if it's called you know some really poetic evocative thing mm -hmm. that doesn't yeah, necessarily relate that much to the you know i mean there will come soft rains it does actually relate to the story but in a lot of cases stories with fantastic titles they don't actually help you identify the story particularly yeah i i should mention also that there will come soft rains is actually a line i believe from a poem so it's not like he came up with it but i i think it's still a fitting title i mean a lot of us do that too. we steal lines <laughs> from something else to title stories certainly people have stolen plenty from bradbury yeah <laughs> 
I've I've heard that he had like filing cabinets full of hundreds or thousands of unused story ideas. So I sort of wonder what what will what the disposition of all those thousands of story ideas will be now. You know, will they you know, will they be put into the public domain or I don't even know. They probably won't be posted on the internet. <laughs> That would be great, though, if they just sent some of these ideas out to to writers and said, okay, you know, do something with this and then collected all of those into some kind of collection or something. You know, there's that joke that, you know, and, you know, writers always hate, like, well, where do you get your ideas? And then the joke, the old joke is like, oh, I, you know, I send a letter or self-adjusted envelope to this post office box in Schenectady or whatever, you know, and it's and it's like, uh you know, it's like, well, you know, they, they could like, actually set that up and it would just be like, it'd be like the Bradbury, uh, you know, idea fund, and, you know, <laughs> and uh, just actually send an idea, you know. There was actually, I, I saw there was this, it was a small press book, but it was, I guess, Lovecraft, the same thing happened when he died. He had this list of a thousand story ideas he had never gotten around to using. And so for this anthology, they random, you know, you participated in the anthology and they would randomly assign you one of the ideas from this list. And, and you know, that made up the contents of the anthology. So. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, actually, for what it's worth, um, you know, we should mention that there's this new anthology called Shadow Show, which is uh, um, edited by Sam Weller and Mort Castle. Um, the subtitle is All New, all New Stories in Celebration of Ray Bradbury. Um, so they're all stories that are sort of influenced or inspired by Bradbury in some way, you know, not actually set in, in the same world as any of his stories or anything, but um, sort of inspired by his work. I mean, it's got an all-star lineup like Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, Harlan Ellison, Joe Hill, Kelly Link. Um, you know, all, all sorts of, uh, you know, major writers are in there. Um, and that just came out, um, actually just coincidentally, uh, right around the time that he died. I mean, um, you know, I mean, it was in progress to, to come out as a, as a tribute anthology while he was still here. Um, but then just unfortunately, he just, he happened to die right before it came out. So, um, and Neil Gaiman's story, you can actually find online, um, cause the, when when Bradbury died, they they decided to go ahead and make that available because it's a it's a very moving uh, tribute to the man. Yeah, and if you don't know who Sam Weller is, he befriended Bradbury and like lived it in his basement. You know, I guess you know Bradbury gave Sam access to his files and everything, and so Sam produced the mo- the, the definitive Ray Bradbury biography. My wife uh, actually met him at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, where he was like the guest speaker for like many years. Like he would be basically kick off the convention by giving a, a little lecture. So you know he he devoted a lot of time to trying to help uh, you know the next generation and new generations that followed in his footsteps. So yeah, I saw him in person once. He came and you know he did an appearance at I think Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena when I was living in L.A. And uh, unfortunately, there were about. 500 people ahead of me and, and you know there was a line of about 500 people uh waiting to get books signed and things and i couldn't stay that long but uh that was the one i did i did sort of linger by the the desk and just sort of watch him interact with some of the people and uh that was as close as i got i mean are there any other ray bradbury works that you guys want to talk about i mean i guess one that i wanted to talk about was his novel something wicked this way comes actually speaking of uh stealing titles from, from people but uh it's about these these two boys in in the kind of a Midwest American town when this sinister carnival comes to town one one summer. And it has just a fantastic sort of opening prologue, which I unfortunately I probably can't repeat word for word, but it, it ends it says something like, uh, they would never be as so young again. And I, I believe that this was expanded from a short story called Black Ferris. And I don't know, have you guys either of you guys read that one? 
I haven't. And that was one of the ones I think as a kid, I was, I, it sounded interesting, but for some reason I, I, I never got into it. Um, was it, is it like scary? Is it horror? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's, yeah, the, the part I really remember from that is that there's this witch who, uh, flies around town in this miniature Zeppelin is the way I remember it anyway. And, you know, so the, the main character kind of sees this, uh, the Zeppelin kind of skimming across the trees toward his house and he climbs out his window and runs away. And yeah, and there is this, this definite air of menace. Like, see, Raj, you wrote this article, right? Um, Ray Bradbury, Mr. Electro and me. Could you talk to me about who's Mr. Electro and? Yeah, it's actually Mr. Electrico, but, um, I, I learned about this because before he even died, I, uh, had been pointed in the direction of the Paris Review website, which has a bunch of interviews that they've done over the years with various authors. And Bradbury's is one of the best that they have up there. And of course, you know, I immediately focused on him because of his science fictional background. But he talks about how when he was a kid, like this character existed and, and he went to this carnival and Mr. Electrico actually, you know, would have electricity pass through his body. Um, and he had this little, like, I think a, a sword, I think it was, that he would touch people in the audience with, and then their hair would start to, like, stick up because the electrical current would pass through it. I, I think the, the key moment that a lot of people talk about is, is when he reached out to um, Bradbury and touched him with the, the sword and said, live forever. And, you know, he, his response was, I, so I decided to do that. You know, it, it was kind of this interesting contrast because he died obviously last month but you know obviously through his fiction I, I i would be surprised if he did not live forever that way but the other interesting thing is that he hung around with mr electrico at the carnival and and, and he he got introduced to all the members of uh, you know the carney folk who who are working there and apparently mr electrico felt that he was a reincarnation. Bradbury was a reincarnation of uh, a lost friend of his. And so, you know, they felt this immediate connection to one another. And that apparently formed the basis for, you know, obviously um, something wicked this way comes um, and maybe some other stuff. Like, I don't, I don't know if the illustrated man came out of that experience as well, but I just thought it was this, you know, magical idea of this young Bradbury kind of going to this carnival and just almost like being adopted for the day by, by all these people who work there and having this connection immediately with this one guy. And it, especially as I was writing it, because I, I wanted to write it as a tribute because he was one of these heroes of mine. And he's one of these people who, you know, changed my life when it comes to the way I look at fiction and the way I look at, at words and writing. You know, so, so I, for me, at least it was this interesting parallel where this guy, you know, who touched him physically, you know, sent this energy into him and changed his life because he said after that, you know, he decided to start writing and, and make sure he wrote a thousand words every day. And I wasn't physically touched by Ray Bradbury, but like, you know, I listening to those tapes when I was a kid, it was him reading his stories. And so it was, you know, a different kind of contact, but that kind of awaken something in me, awaken some appreciation of language, uh, uh, interest in writing, you know, and, and carrying through to this day. And I thought, you know, that, that was really amazing. So. 
CN John, you also just wrote an article about Ray Bradbury called Sci-Fi Scribes on Ray Bradbury, Storyteller, Showman, and Alchemist, uh, in which you sort of collected testimonials kind of from, from different writers about Ray Bradbury. Do, uh, do any of those sort of stick out in your mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so I, I, I did that article for Wired.com. Um, you know, it was uh, of the people who responded. Um, I think, uh, you know, like Greg Bear's response uh, sort of sticks out. Uh, I mean, he's very heartfelt. Uh, I mean, he talks about, um, you know, as I, as I was mentioning earlier, how, how Bradbury would, uh, you know, sort of take people aside and, and, and as a young writer, you know, spend time talking to them. And Joe Hill has some quote, has a quote, uh, Daniel H. Wilson, Jonathan Mayberry, um, you know, uh, so a lot of, a lot of people on there, um, you know, uh, say very, very nice things about Bradbury. And, and it's, it's really, it's really a nice, uh, nice tribute to the man. So you mentioned to me that, that Christie was really affected by Ray Bradbury. Is that, I don't know if that's too personal to talk about, but is that, is that something, is that anything you want to talk about? Oh uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I mentioned how, uh, my wife had met Bradbury at the Santa Barbara Risers conference. So, and I mean, a lot of ways, you know, he was like her, her literary hero, you know, um, I mean, uh, and then, you know, and so she took his death really hard and, and she, you know, she, she sort of, uh, you know, found herself, uh, crying a lot after his death. And, and, you know, she was, uh, she would go to bed and, and take a collection with him, with her and, uh, and read some, try to read some of his stories. But then it's like, I had to, I had to take it away from her. It's like, no, you can't do that anymore because, you know, it just, it, it was upsetting her too much. And then she couldn't go to sleep and, you know, she had to work the next day and everything. And so. You know, I mean, he's he's that kind of writer that just you know just really touched people in, in such a profound way that, um, you know, his loss was uh, was like palpable. You know, Raj, you want to tell us maybe? I mean, you mentioned that you were you're you're a writer yourself and have been kind of influenced by Bradbury. You want to tell people like what you've written and maybe what they should go check out? Uh sure. I I mean, I'm I've published only short stories so far. I have a novel in the works, but, um, my fiction, it's appeared in various places. Um, one of John's anthologies, the way of the wizard. Uh, I have a story this year, um, earlier this year, I'm beneath ceaseless skies. And, uh, I have a few more that are coming out. The next one that I have coming out is in an anthology, a YA dystopian anthology called diverse energies that was, uh, edited by Joe Monty and Tobias Bacal. It's coming out from two books in, uh, October, I believe. So that that's my next story. Um, it's called What Arms to Hold. But yeah, um, my website is www.rajankana.com. So it's, I should probably spell that. It's R-A-J-A-N-K-H-A-N-N-A.com. And all my stories are listed there. And as you can tell from his uh, uh, dulcet tones, uh, he's he's got quite a nice voice on him. And he's he's done a bunch of narrations for for podcasts like Starship Sofa and uh, Podcastle uh, and, and the like, and uh, including uh, he's done a couple, a couple for me. Uh, he he did uh, uh, he he narrated uh, uh, Joe Lansdale's uh, story from my my Barsoom anthology, which ran here on Wired. And what was the other one you just did recently? I don't know, but I I narrated one of David's stories actually, the Cats in Victory, wasn't it? The for oh yeah yeah. Do any of those stories you mentioned, Raj, have a pronounced Ray Bradbury influence? You know, I, it's it's interesting because I think I've just recently rededicated myself to not necessarily, I mean, copying from him, but but kind of taking some of the spirit of what he does. And and I guess what I've taken from it is 
more of a, I guess, dedication or to, to, to try to honor my love for the language and his love for the language, because, you know, I think he, he kind of kicked off that for me. I, I guess just in reading what he's been writing also just to his attitude, his, his kind of un- unbridled enthusiasm, not just for life and writing, but, you know, just for, for, for everything it seemed like, you know, and he, he wrote such horrific, not horrific, but scary stories, I suppose, sometimes, um, you know, cautionary tales, sometimes really creepy, but it seemed like, you know, as a person, he was just kind of full of joy for life and, you know, trying to have that more in my life, I suppose, as well. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Raj, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. And thanks again to Ursula K. Le Guin for being our guest today. If you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to the iTunes store and give us a review or rating there. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.